The year is 1988. A new commercial appears on TVs across the country. Like most effective commercials, this one is simple and short. It features Walter Stack, an 80-year-old union organizer. I run 17 miles every morning. He's famous in the San Francisco Bay Area for running shirtless from Fisherman's Wharf to Sausalito and back in full view of thousands of morning commuters. As Stack gleefully crosses the Golden Gate Bridge, the camera zooms in to capture the breath puffing from his mouth, his sneakers slapping the asphalt. The ad draws to a close on a black screen and three words, just do it. Today, those words have become as synonymous with Nike as the signature swoosh. But in 1988, the tagline was seen as something of a gamble, a big statement. It had been developed by Dan Whedon, the co-founder of the ad firm Whedon and Kennedy. The inspiration, bizarrely enough, were the final words of the infamous murderer Gary Gilmore. In 1977, as the firing squad trained their guns on Gilmore, he called out to them, let's do it. Whedon, a savvy marketer, didn't love the context, but then again, viewers didn't have to know where he'd gotten the idea from, right? All they had to do was respond to the words, which they did. Soon, Just Do It is appearing on billboards and magazine and newspaper ads and in more TV commercials. It becomes the mantra for people trying to push themselves to do something big, do something tough. The most famous of these ads airs a couple of years later in 1990. Unlike the Walt Stack spot, the new ad doesn't focus on just one athlete. Instead, it's a whole parade of celebrities superstars signed to Nike. Michael Jordan, rising toward the rim. Wayne Gretzky, his blonde hair perfectly coiffed. Bo Jackson, jackhammering a pitch into the atmosphere. And Spike Lee, the filmmaker, adoringly holding up a Nike sneaker. Again, the ad ends on the words, just do it. Just do it. It's a simple, memorable, punchy trifecta of words that lodges in the brain and reminds consumers that in Nike gear, they are capable of doing almost anything. Nike, the most popular sneaker company in the country, finally has a slogan worthy of its name. Enjoy a powerful business upgrade with Dell Technologies' Black Friday in July event. Get amazing savings with up to 50% off high-performance computers and tech built for business. And be able to take your office with you with Windows 10 Pro. Plus, get great offers on Dell servers, monitors, docks, and more, all with easy financing options through Dell Financial Services. Call 877-ASK-DELL. That's 877-ASK-DELL. And speak with a Dell Technologies advisor today. Louisiana has unmistakably unique culture, world-class cuisine, and the nation's top-ranked workforce development program. This incredible state's business environment is powerful, rich, and diverse. It's the gateway to 38 states and the world with a port system delivering the most domestic cargo in the U.S. It's also where NASA and higher ed partners build rockets that will transport the first women to the moon. Discover Louisiana's investment resources at OpportunityLouisiana.com to learn how your company can gain a competitive advantage in Louisiana. From Wondery, this is Business Wars. 
I'm David Brown. We've been telling the story of the war for sneaker supremacy between Nike and Adidas. This is Episode 5, Rebound. A lot has already happened, and we get it if you have a little bit of whiplash. So let's get back up to speed, shall we? You'll recall that once upon a time, it was Adidas that helped usher in the age of the modern sneaker from its origins in pre-World War II Europe. But then, Nike shows up. Because it's based on the west coast of the U.S., it has a better grip on the American consumer than the German old-timer. Starting in the 1970s and especially in the 1980s, Nike explodes. Like, really takes off. The company builds a reputation for cutting-edge shoes. It attracts the biggest athletes on earth. It rolls out advertising campaigns like Just Do It that further solidify its dominance. And Adidas? Well, Adidas just keeps shrinking in the rearview mirror until the late 1980s. With his chairman, Horst Dassler, dead at the age of 51, its leadership decides to sell to a French businessman named Bernard Tapie. This is a total reversal of fortunes. Nike, the one-time underdog, is now on top. And it's Adidas that's struggling to catch up with a competitor with much deeper pockets and an itch to innovate. But Adidas isn't dead yet. In the last episode, Adidas lured a pair of former Nike executives, Rob Strasser and Peter Moore, to its German headquarters. Under their guidance, the company decides to refocus its efforts on what it does best. Solid, functional athletic wear and classic styles. Today, we catch up with Strasser and Moore. It's early 1993, about five years after the debut of Nike's very first Just Do It advertisement. Strasser and Moore are still heading up a consulting company with Adidas as their primary client. It's right around this time that Adidas passes into the hands of another French businessman. This one is named Robert Louis Dreyfus. Louis Dreyfus, a cousin of the actress Julia Louis Dreyfus, specializes in turning around failing companies. But he's not a buttoned-down corporate type. He's wild-haired and loud, a cigar-chomping, self-described gambler. Rob Strasser is also wild-haired and loud and hard-living. And in Strasser, Louis Dreyfus recognizes not just a kindred spirit, but a man who can help Adidas fight their way back into the U.S. market. A man who Phil Knight once called his MVP. In February of 1993, Louis Dreyfus cuts a deal with Strasser and Moore to buy out their consulting company in Portland and repurpose the surrounding property as the new headquarters of Adidas America. He names Strasser the CEO of Adidas America and Moore the creative director. A startup vibe begins to reign. The cluster of buildings that serves as the home base of Adidas America is a far cry from the glass-walled grandiosity of the global HQ in Germany. There are boxes piled up everywhere, shoe samples on top of every available workspace. And through it all rampages Strasser with his 300-pound bulk and his penchant for colorful Hawaiian shirts. He urges his employees to strike fear into the competitors on the other side of town to put a target on Nike's back. Suffice to say that none of this makes Phil Knight particularly happy. He had had a bitter falling out with Strasser years earlier. Still, at least part of him respects his old employee's gusto. We were both born to compete, and we were both bad at forgiving, he'll write years later in his memoir. Right away, Strasser and Moore set about razzing Nike. 
1993, when Nike executives return for a big shoe trade show, one of the first things they see at the Portland airport are banners bearing their competitors' trademark three white stripes, compliments of the Adidas employees. And it's not just competitive gestures, either. Strasser and Moore rack up some real wins early on. Supermodel Claudia Schiffer, the paparazzi magnet, is spotted sporting Adidas America gear. So is Madonna. But Strasser's reign at Adidas America is short. While at a company retreat in Germany, he starts grabbing at his chest. He's transported to Munich, where he dies. At 46, his lifestyle has finally caught up with him. Adidas named Steve Wynn to head up its Adidas America. Steve Wynn, a Portland-based law partner, replaces Strasser with more remaining in his job as creative director. The new team helps to spearhead the creation of a massive football field-sized hospitality suite at the site of the 1996 Summer Olympics in Atlanta, an event where 70 Adidas sponsors grab medals. Donovan Bailey, a Canadian sprinter, sets the world record in the 100 meters. Once again, as was the case with Jesse Owens back in 1936, the world sees Adidas on the feet of the fastest man on the planet. Adidas is still trailing Nike by a considerable margin in the United States. In 1996, for example, Nike has about 30% of the American sneaker market, and Adidas has only around 6%. But that 6%? That 6% is a marked increase over the 4% the company had just three years earlier. And there's a sense among analysts and industry insiders that Adidas is on the right track. They're doing exactly what they need to do. An American staff led by American designers focused on what American consumers want. And remember Strasser and Moore's recommendation to bring back vintage Adidas style? The Gazelle and Samba sneakers are reintroduced into the American market, and they quickly become staples of the grunge rock scene. Another Rob Strasser innovation, a line called Adidas Equipment, focuses on sturdy, functional athletic gear, and they start selling like wildfire. A surge of optimism runs through Adidas's Portland offices. Still, the company knows that if it truly wants to reclaim the market lead from Nike one day, to climb from 6% of the market to 30 or more, it'll have to rack up a whole lot more sponsorship deals. But how, exactly? Adidas America lacks the disposable income of its rivals over in Beaverton. And what little cash it is able to scrape up goes to promising players like Kobe Bryant, who's been recruited a year earlier by Adidas prior to Bryant's debut in the NBA. Kobe is a promising get for Adidas, make no mistake, biggest basketball star since Michael Jordan. But still, he's not enough. So, Adidas America gets creative. In 1997, a man named Mike Wadsworth swings by Adidas America headquarters. Wadsworth is a big guy, thick through the shoulders, with neatly parted silver hair and a face like a chunk of granite. In his heyday, Wadsworth played football professionally up in Canada, but now, in his 50s, he settled into a gig as athletic director for Notre Dame. Notre Dame is, of course, home to one of the most storied teams in college football, 
a team with a rabid fan base. Notre Dame is so big that it has its own television contract with NBC to air all its games nationally, making the sponsorship deals it cuts really important to the apparel companies. Charlie, I might mention John Robinson, the head coach of the company, says team on the field. Notre Dame got 57,700 requests for tickets. Up until now, Notre Dame has been aligned with Nike. But Adidas hears that the fight in Irish may be in the market for a better deal. Robert Erb, the head of marketing for Adidas America, greets Wadsworth at the door to the Adidas America warehouse on the fringes of Portland. The two men walk inside. Because Erb can't show Wadsworth anything as flashy as the Nike campus, Erb has decided to dress up Adidas America HQ to play a part. And the part today is that of high-tech laboratory. Erb has picked up a bunch of white lab coats, and he's got all his guys wearing them. Best of all, he's hauled in a treadmill and set it up next to a panel of blinking lights. His special effects piece de resistance. And here's where we test our gear. Top of the line stuff. Very impressive. Before the Notre Dame athletic director leaves, Herb and his team present a handful of blown up pictures. Recognize these? Huh, our current jerseys. You'll notice that the Nike logo, the swoosh, sometimes appears on the front of the jersey. And where do the words Notre Dame appear? <clears throat> on the back. That's right. So what do you think Nike cares about most? Notre Dame or Nike? I see what you mean. Wadsworth likes what he hears. Soon, the news is public. Notre Dame is leaving Nike for Adidas. It's a deal that will help open all sorts of doors for the three stripes in the United States. It's also a deal that serves as official notice to Nike. Adidas is back. Where's my order? Where's my order? Where's my order? Break free from customer support monotony. Welcome to Intercom for Customer Support, the business messenger that uses chatbots, shared inboxes, apps, and more. Intercom's Business Messenger resolves questions that can be answered automatically, so customer support feels less like Groundhog Day and more like help is on the way. Go to intercom.com support to learn more about Intercom's Business Messenger for customer support. Birthdays, holidays, promotions, getting that last sprinkle donut. There's a lot in this world worth celebrating, but nothing is worth celebrating more than knowledge, especially knowledge that will pay off like understanding how compound interest works, knowing how to check your investment professional's background, or figuring out your risk tolerance, or finally understanding all those terms your friends keep throwing around like ETF, ESG, and ICO. Go to Investor.gov today to learn about these investment products and more. How much do you already know about investing? Find out by putting your financial knowledge to the test with their new investment quiz. Investor.gov is your unbiased resource for valuable investment information, tools, and tips. Before you invest, Investor.gov. Robert Erb here. 1997. The same year that Adidas snatches Notre Dame away from Nike. Robert Erb, the head of marketing for Adidas America, is in his office in Portland when the phone rings. Robert, this is Derek Scheller. I'm with the New York Yankees. 
I'll be straightforward here. We're looking to forge an apparel sponsorship deal. For the Yankees, the appeal of such a deal is obvious. A notoriously free-spending team, the Yankees could certainly use the cash. But it's also an unmatched opportunity for whatever company provides that gear. And Schiller doesn't hide the fact that he knows the Yankees are a whale of a get. We're talking to everyone. Nike, Reebok, all of them. Does Adidas want in? I'll be there tomorrow. Schiller is impressed. No rep at any other company has been so enthusiastic. And he's even more surprised when a few days later Robert Louis Dreyfus, the head of all of Adidas, joins Herb and Schiller in New York. They sit down with Yankees team owner George Steinbrenner. Steinbrenner and Louis Dreyfus get along well and they quickly hammer out a deal. Adidas to pay $93 million over 10 years to outfit the New York Yankees. It's the third blockbuster sponsorship in the space of two years. The first had been Kobe Bryant, with Nike declining to outbid Adidas on the player. The second had been Notre Dame. And now, now Adidas has the Yankees. The biggest names in college football, professional basketball, and professional baseball, respectively. And the effect is felt pretty quickly. In 1991, the year Adidas America moved to Portland, the company's U.S. revenue was about a quarter of a million bucks. By the end of 1997, it's up to 1.6 billion. But with the exception of the Kobe Bryant deal, one market eludes Adidas, and it is the market that has become the true premier showcase for sneakers in America. You're talking about the courts of the National Basketball League. Remember that Adidas in the 1970s had the vast majority of professional basketball players in its stable. Through the 1980s and 90s and now the early 2000s, those gains have been all but erased as the Air Jordan and its dozens of variants become the most coveted shoes on earth. No matter what kind of sneaker Adidas trots out, and some of the shoes are very good, it can't seem to make a dent in Nike's supremacy. And then the worst happens. Adidas loses Kobe. It doesn't happen overnight. Adidas is able to get Bryant as a rookie because although the kid is obviously very good, his talent isn't fully realized. He's not Jordan in his first year on the courts. He'd come relatively cheap. And initially, for a newly ascendant Adidas, Kobe is the gift that kept on giving. Every championship he won, every highlight reel he appeared in, fans were getting an eyeful of the Adidas brand. From 1996 to the summer of 2002, Kobe plays exclusively in Adidas shoes, a partnership that yields most famously the KB8s, with their chunky heels and zigzagging lines, which winds across the stitched leather like a snake. But by the time Kobe steers the Lakers through three consecutive national championships in 2000, 2001, and 2002, he started to get itchy. Every other big player, it seems, is wearing Nikes. In the end, it's the Kobe 2 that seals the deal, a sneaker designed in cooperation with the automaker Audi. Adidas envisions it as sharing some of the same aesthetics as the Audi TT sports car. The Kobe 2s are big and laceless and ugly, and they sell terribly. Bryant is done with Adidas, so done that in 2002, Bryant pays a rumored $8 million out of his own pocket to break his contract with Adidas. 
In 2003, he signs a $40 million five-year deal with Nike. Between Kobe and LeBron James, who had been signed by Nike to a $90 million deal out of high school, Nike now has almost all of the top talent in the NBA locked up. And it will, for years to come. Things look even brighter in 2003 when Nike acquires Converse and its historic line of all-star sneakers. Still, Nike is about to undergo a period of tumult. From its earliest days, Nike and Phil Knight have been synonymous. Yes, Bill Bowerman had been the brain behind the earliest sneakers, but it was Phil Knight with his market instincts that kept Nike on track. And Knight takes great pride in his empire. I always feel a thrill, a shot of adrenaline when I drive through the intersection of the campus's two main streets. But Knight has found himself wearied by what is now a decade-long controversy over conditions in the overseas factories Nike uses to make its shoes. As Nike has acknowledged, some of the criticism was legitimate and the company had pledged to do better going so far as to agree to independent audits of the overseas factories. Later, the company will even open an entire department tasked with improving conditions at its manufacturing centers. Still, the controversy roils onwards. There's a segment of the public who see Nike as synonymous with sweatshops and shoddy quality. There are street protests. There are protests on college campuses. There's even a media stir caused by Jonah Peretti, the future founder of BuzzFeed, who uses a Nike Design Your Own Sneaker website to order a pair of shoes emblazoned with the word sweatshop. In an email to Peretti, Nike refuses to design the sneaker. Peretti publishes the correspondence, embarrassing the hell out of Nike. Phil Knight feels a sense of betrayal at how his company is being portrayed. He describes this feeling in his memoir, Shoe Dog. Whenever reporters said a factory was unsatisfactory, they never said how much better it was than the day we first went in. They never said how hard we'd worked with our factory partners to upgrade conditions, to make them safer and cleaner. They never said these factories weren't ours, that we were renters, one among many tenants. And then, personal tragedy strikes Phil Knight. In 2004, Knight and his wife Penny are taking in an afternoon screening of Shrek 2. About halfway through the movie, Knight catches sight of an employee making his way down the aisle towards him. Uh, you guys need to come with me, please. Outside, the employee delivers the news. Knight's son, Matthew, has died while scuba diving in Central America. Knight's wife collapses. Phil Knight struggles to process the news himself. And a few months later, he steps down as CEO, retaining his title as chairman of the company's board, while passing on the chief executive mantle to William Perez, formerly the head of S.C. Johnson, the cleaning supplies company. Perez, who has no experience in the athletic apparel business, doesn't last very long. On January 9, 2006, Knight walks into Perez's office and takes a seat at a large round conference table. For several minutes, Knight talks about mundane matters, and then he gets down to the point. It's, it's not working. It's time to go. We're going to look elsewhere for leadership. But Perez isn't ready to walk. Can I appeal the decision to the board? Uh, sure. The board, deferring to Knight, promptly turns Perez down. Later that month, in a conference call with investors, Knight reveals the identity of the next Nike CEO. 
Mark Parker, who joined Nike all the way back in 1979 as a footwear designer in the company's New Hampshire offices. How much Knight's decision to replace Perez has to do with Nike's competitors is unclear, but market pressure almost certainly plays a role. As Phil Knight knows, Adidas has been on a spending spree, starting with a $1.35 billion deal to acquire the French athletic company Salomon, which has a golfing line that competes directly with Nike. And then in 2005, Adidas makes a game-changing rim shot that will alter the sneaker landscape. Adidas spends $3.8 billion to buy Reebok, the Boston-based sports apparel business. The deal pays immediate dividends. The NBA had a deal with Reebok in place for all players to wear Reebok shirts and shorts. After Reebok is acquired, Adidas gets the rights, and in the season starting in 2006, every ball player is wearing the three stripes. But it's the longer-term outlook that really unnerves Nike. By purchasing Reebok, Adidas now owns the second and the third largest sneaker companies in the United States. Adidas adds thousands of employees, and it brings its market cap to $11.5 billion in whispering range of Nike's own $16 billion. All that distance Nike had opened up between itself and Adidas, well, it suddenly feels to Phil Knight like nowhere near enough distance at all, and Adidas is only getting started. After Nike CEO Phil Knight stepped down in 2004, William Perez, former CEO of SC Johnson, was hired to replace him. Nike was putting a man with no experience in athletic apparel at the top of an athletic apparel company. Within just a few years, Perez was out. just wasn't a good fit. What Nike needed wasn't more people. It was the right person, the all-star who could take them to the next level. They eventually turned to Mark Parker, a former Nike footwear designer who knew the Nike brand inside and out. Now, how much time did Nike waste and how much money did they lose out on with someone who wasn't the best fit for the company? Truth is, we may never know, but we do know that every business needs quality talent and we know you need a better way to find them. ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way, so they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. That's why 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive so you won't miss a great match. Look, the right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Right now, listeners of Business Wars can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash BW. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash BW. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Next time on Business Wars, we'll bring things to the present day and answer a question that had for decades seemed almost laughable. Can Nike be caught? I hope you enjoyed this episode of Business Wars. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts like this one. You'll find a link on the episode notes. Just tap or swipe over the cover art. You'll also see some offers from our sponsors, and we hope you'll support our show by supporting them. If you like what you heard, we'd love for you to give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe, too. Another way to support us is to answer a short survey at wondery.com survey. 
and tell us what business war stories you'd like to hear. If you're interested in reading more about this topic, the author recommends two great books he drew on for this episode, Sneaker Wars by Barbara Smith and Shoe Dog, the memoir by Nike founder Phil Knight. I'm your host, David Brown. Matthew Scher wrote this story. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Sound designed by Bay Area Sound. Our executive producers are Marsha Louie and Hernan Lopez for Wondery. Hey, I'm Mike Corey, the host of Wandery's show, Against the Odds. In our next season, I'm telling an amazing true story about American sailors who wrecked their ship off the coast of Africa in 1815. They're captured by a nomadic tribe. To escape, they will need to cross the largest hot desert in the world to reach civilization. They will battle against blistering heat, inhumane conditions, hunger, and thirst. Their heroic fight to get home will have a much greater impact than just on their own lives. It will influence a future president and change the course of American history in ways that are still felt today. This is the true story of the men who made it, and it's one that you don't want to miss. Subscribe to Against the Odds on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the Wondery app, or wherever you're listening right now.